T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire in a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. The online landscape has changed a lot over the past few years. As social media companies have taken steps to deal with widespread abuse and misinformation, that's run rampant on their platforms. But with Elon Musk now poised to become the sole owner of Twitter, that online landscape seems primed for a tectonic shift once again. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, with Elon Musk promising to take a more hands-off approach to content moderation, we're going to discuss what his Twitter takeover could mean for free expression on the platform. And it is a thorny question. Depending on whom you ask, Twitter's content moderation has either been a vital safeguard, reigning in hate speech, bullying, and misinformation, or it's represented a politically biased overreach, stifling legitimate viewpoints, including those of many conservatives. Well, we're going to venture into that thorny question right now with the help of three experts on Internet media. I'm uh, going to welcome on first Imran Ahmed. He's the CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. That's a U.S. and U.K.-based nonprofit. Imran Ahmed, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. It's good to be here. Also welcoming on David Green. He is the Civil Liberties Director for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a San Francisco-based advocacy group. Thank you for having me. And finally, welcoming on David Rand, a professor of management at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. David Rand, welcome to you as well. Thanks. Great to be here. All right. So just to remind everyone where we are with this story, uh, on Monday, news broke that Elon Musk had reached an agreement with Twitter's board to buy the company for $44 billion. The next question, of course, is what will it mean for Twitter if the deal goes through? Well, we've definitely gotten some hints. Musk, who describes himself as a free speech absolutist, has made it clear in recent tweets and interviews that he favors much looser content moderation on the site. Speaking at a recent TED conference, he said that he plans to allow even the most controversial content to stay up unless it violates the law, adding, quote, if in doubt, let the speech exist. So if Musk does acquire the company and follows through on those statements, 
That would mark a major shift away from the direction the company has been going. Uh, David Green, again with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, starting with you, tell us a little bit about that direction. Uh, how has Twitter's approach to content moderation been changing in recent years? Yeah, I think the I think the most general thing you can say about Twitter's content moderation approach over the recent years is that they've professionalized it. Uh, Twitter, as with most sites, has always moderated some content. They they were never uh, really a site that allowed uh, all every user uh, posts to stay up there and, and be untouched. Uh, in the in the early days, their moderation might have focused more on on sexual expression, uh, but there were, there were certainly other topics that they've moderated. What they've done in the last few years, uh, largely in response both to their user base and to the human rights community around the world, has to really try and professionalize that and to really try and make better decisions. They've built up a fairly robust uh, human rights team. Uh, they've tried to make their terms of service and their community standards much more clear. They've worked pretty hard on trying to uh, make consistent decisions. Uh, and, 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 and they've also really expanded the range of, of subjects to which they're looking at more carefully. That really first was first uh, with respect to abusive and harassing speech. They started being much more proactive in that, uh, largely in response to Gamergate. Uh, then they really started looking more at hate speech in response to a lot of the pressure they were receiving from uh, civil society groups focusing on, on hate speech. And then lately with both the 2016 US election, elections in Uganda, as well as COVID, they really start focusing on misinformation. Um, and, 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 and they have professionalized that. All that being said, there's still a lot of mistakes being made mm. uh, and it's still really hard to do these, these things very well. Yeah, yeah. And in practice, uh, we're talking about many examples of high profile users being banned in the site for violating various rules. We're talking about uh, tweets. Uh, you know, we saw this just begin to appear a few years ago uh, with little labels at the bottom uh, warning users about uh, potential misinformation. Uh, we've also seen uh, various tweets either getting upvoted or downvoted, uh, basically emphasized or de-emphasized in the algorithm. So a lot of different tools that the site uh, is using uh, aimed at content moderation, making the environment more healthy. Uh, David Green, sticking with you, we'll uh, let you start out this conversation and then uh, let Imran Ahmed chime in next. What, in your view, might be lost if some of these safeguards come down? What does that look like? Well, I, I, first of all, I, I think the main thing is that I think a lot of users are going to be unhappy. I think there are users who only go onto Twitter because they feel like it provides some shield against against them being exposed to hateful speech or or disinformation. And and so I think you'll see those users if if they start to see that that speech appearing in their timelines again, they might they might leave. And certainly if they're subject to personal harassment or abuse, uh, they will leave. And then there's also uh, what we also might see is um, is just a more proliferation. A lot of the speech that Twitter has worked really hard to keep off, again, not with complete success, uh, but in terms of hateful speech and disinformation uh, that will just be more existing on the site. And you know, that might and that can lead to other consequences off the site as well. And so I, these are things we should we should keep our eyes open for. All right. And uh, bringing Imran Ahmed again, again, the uh, CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Uh, what would you want to add to that picture? 
Well, I think the story of enforcement and 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 how platforms perform when it comes to moderating speech is actually a, it's the gap. The story is really in the gap between their community standards, the rules that they set for themselves, which haven't evolved that substantially over time. You know, maybe they've become broader uh, to to include sort of not just hate, for example, but dehumanizing content. Uh, but those standards have always been fairly. Yeah, they're fairly didactic and, and they're fairly that they're, they're, they're quite good actually. Um it that that community would be a fairly well regulated and not you know, they, it bans hate, it bans disinformation being deliberately spread, it bans targeted abuse, it bans harassment. But that's not the experience that anyone has on Twitter. So this idea that it's suddenly gotten better is to me really strange because in studies that we've done over the past few years. When we tested their enforcement, we've tested, for example, just last, no, well, this week we put out a report on anti-Muslim hatred. We reported hundreds a bit of of, of hate to the, all the different platforms. And then we went back and audited how much action they took against really egregious breaches of their community standards. Twitter, like the rest of them, only took down one in 10 examples of extreme hatred, including things like the lionization of the Christchurch terrorist and the great replacement theory conspiracy theories, which in the wake of the Christchurch massacre and the Tree of Life uh, massacre of Jews in Pittsburgh, they promised they would take action on. So uh, it does. It, I know that the sort of the eight hundred pound gorilla, you know, orange faced gorilla in the room is Donald Trump, and of course everyone talks about how the action was taken on Trump, but that that one instance doesn't prove they've gotten better at anything in reality they may have that that, that and it's that, that one incident may have given the impression they're taking action but the reality is they're just as rubbish as they always were all right, so hearing a little bit of uh, skepticism that uh, twitter is really living up to the policies that it has well, uh, well, announced in go ahead i mean the, the most recent study we did just a few days ago that we issued and their reaction to it was we know we're not very good. We've got to get better. And I mean, fair enough to them, you know, all respect to them. And I do I genuinely think that Twitter is the one company that has taken some, into, you know, there has been a shift in their attitude. They're not as hostile and aggressive in response to studies like uh, from civil rights groups and from organizations like mine in, in the past few years. Meta can be very, very dismissive to the point of gaslighting in response to civil rights complaints. Um, but and Twitter are responsive, but they're still not performing. And that's possibly because they're a much smaller company and they simply don't have the scale to cope with the waves of hate and misinformation that flood their system. Yeah. And that they, of course, profit from. Yeah. By the way. Well, I, I may have gotten into this uh, question then, Imran Ahmed, in a little bit of a sideways uh, way. Let's uh, strip away what uh, Twitter has done or not done on their platform so far. Putting that aside for a second. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit, you know, in your view, how are the users that are getting targeted uh, for hate? How are the users that are getting targeted for harassment? How is that impacting real people? Obviously, we're talking about something happening in the online domain, but uh, impacting real people's lives, fair to say? Well, l let me give you one example of how abuse uh, influences people. So over the pandemic, I was asked by vaccinologists um, who were working on the COVID vaccine to help their scientists cope with the psychological stress of waves of abuse. 
that they received on Twitter for just tweeting stuff about the science around COVID and around vaccines. And I remember at one point I said to one of these incredibly talented, publicly spirited individuals who's dedicated their life to science, you need to understand that trolling is purposeful behavior. They're trying to make you shut up. They're not targeting you because you're a bad person. They're targeting you because you're a good person. And she burst into tears. And it, I cannot describe to you how angry it makes me that a, that a platform would not take action to protect those people who were trying to find a solution to something that was taking millions of lives. It is indescribable that we accept that and that in fact the common response is to turn around and say well they shouldn't be so sensitive maybe they should just block them that's not good enough as far as i'm concerned and what we've seen is that the uh, that that when we've got the failure to act reports that we do where we report misinformation we report hatred to the platforms and, and they fail to take action all too often the experience of victims is they they they, they ask for help from the platforms they report stuff but the platforms don't reach their hand back and say, we'll help. And the second thing is that that gives abusers and those spreading hate and misinformation the sense of impunity, a sense that they can get away with it. It, bold, it emboldens, em, emboldens them, and we've seen them get worse over time. You know, the bad guys, their tactics, for the bad actors that we look at, and we look at a small coterie of quite egregious offenders, but they've gotten more sophisticated, more confident, and more emboldened because of the lack of consequences for their malignant activity over time. All right. Well, a lot more to get to in this conversation, uh, but real quick, want to reintroduce everybody. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today we're speaking with Imran Ahmed, CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Also heard a second ago from David Green with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, speaking with them about free speech on Twitter and the potential ramifications for the platform's content moderation policy as Elon Musk's bid to take over the company moves forward. And, uh, of course, one of the biggest arguments against Twitter's content moderation as it stands is the notion that it is squeezing out certain viewpoints, uh, particularly conservative viewpoints. So uh, to flesh out that argument a little bit, I'm going to read a fairly lengthy passage from a recent Wall Street Journal opinion piece put out by Vivek Ramswamy and Jed Rubenfeld. Uh, in their piece, the pair uh, cheer on Musk's Twitter buyout and uh, point to a number of past Twitter decisions that they believe constitute clear examples of political bias. Uh, they state, quote, Conservative opinions about transgenderism are censored as attacks on a protected group. Conservative views on COVID are flagged as misinformation. In May 2020, Twitter censored as a glorification of violence President Trump's When the Looting Starts, the Shooting Starts tweet, while leaving untouched Ayatollah Ala Khamenei's tweets calling for the destruction of Israel and Colin Kaepernick's tweets supporting the burning of police precinct houses. They go on to write that Claims that the Democrats stole the presidency in 2020 are censored, while claims that Russia did the same in 2016 go untouched. End quote. So uh, I think that that encapsulates the criticism against Twitter fairly well. Uh, now we're going to dig into some recent research on political bias and Twitter that I think complicates that picture. 
at least a little bit. Uh, so for that, going to bring on our third guest now. Again, that's MIT management professor David Rand, who co-wrote that study. Uh, David, your study has been cited a lot over the past week. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you were looking for and what it is that you found. So what we did is you know, we're interested in this question of um, <clears throat> is there actually evidence that Twitter is preferentially uh, suspending conservatives? And if so, does that really constitute uh, anti-conservative bias? And so what we did is we got a set of 9,000 politically active Twitter users. We found them in October 2020. Um, and uh, we, there were people that used uh, Trump 2020 or Biden 2020 hashtags. And then we followed them uh, for the next seven months. And we looked at who got suspended. Uh, and what we found sort of consistent at first glance with this anti-conservative bias account was that the conservatives were about four times more likely uh, to have gotten suspended as the liberals. Um, but then what we also did is we analyzed uh, all of the links that they tweeted during that October 2020 period. Um, and we looked at the extent to which they were sharing links from uh websites that were trustworthy versus websites that often uh, shared misinformation. And we found that uh, the misin like the extent to which they were sharing misinformation was as good a predictor of suspension as their partisanship. And one really important part, because the, the standard response that you'll get uh, to this from conservatives is, oh, well, fact checkers just have an anti-conservative bias. And so fine, the fact checkers said the in our information wasn't good, but that's their own bias. And so what we did in the paper is in addition to looking at uh, website ratings based on fact checkers, we also had website ratings for how much misinformation they shared or how trustworthy they were uh, that came from politically balanced groups of lay people. Mm. So these were sort of a representative sample of Americans. We just showed them these different domains and said, how trustworthy do you think they are? And then we average the responses of the Democrats, average the Republicans, put them together. So you have this real politically balanced rating that you can't accuse of bias because it's equally made up of Republicans and Democrats. And still, based on those politically balanced ratings, the politically active Republicans on Twitter shared information from much less trustworthy websites. Hmm. So what this says is just because the conservatives were getting suspended more doesn't necessarily mean that Twitter was actually showing conservative bias. It could just be that they were doing a kind of equal attempt to reduce the spread of misinformation, um, and it would have come out this way. And also, we did a survey of the general public, and we found that uh, a majority of people on both sides of the aisle want Twitter to be reducing the spread of misinformation. Because that's, that's another really relevant bit for like Elon Musk's free speech, no matter what, is that's not actually what the people want. Like, uh, people think that the platforms should be reducing misinformation and not just misinformation in general, but we also specifically asked about QAnon conspiracies because people might say, okay, fine, Democrats and Republicans in general want less misinformation. But when you actually talk about specific cases, they disagree about what's misinformation. But we found that a majority of people on both sides of the aisle also said that Twitter should be reducing the spread of QAnon conspiracies. Yeah. What... So what we're talking about here is how this content management looks in the aggregate. Do you think that it's fair to say that there are individual cases where Twitter might be over aggressive in taking down, uh, acting against questionable tweets? Uh, I mean, 
it's just it's a lot of different cases that we're talking about here. So I, I suppose uh, there's a lot of different stories that could be told all at once, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that um, for sure, content moderation gets it wrong sometimes. And there even are cases where they will change their mind and they'll reinstate something. They'll take it down and be like, okay, no, actually, it turns out that's not misinformation. But just because a system is imperfect doesn't mean you should throw it out. And also doesn't necessarily mean that it's systematically biased in the mistakes uh, that it makes. Um, and, you know, that's that's a sort of empirical question that I haven't seen data on. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh Interesting research and a good contribution to this conversation. I want to bring uh, David Green back on again with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So uh, obviously, as we just heard there, there are a lot of complexities here to exactly when it's appropriate to take something down, uh, what is uh, biased in one person's eyes, what is misinformation in one person's eyes uh, versus another person's eyes. Uh, how do you think uh, about this issue? Uh, I know that the Electronic Frontier Foundation put out, uh, has put out some guidelines on content moderation, recommended guidelines uh, for Twitter. What do, you, what do you think would be some good standards for people to think uh, about as they try to wrap their heads around this issue? Yeah. So, I mean, content moderation and not just, this is not just Twitter, obviously, this is every, every online service uh, that does this. It is a really complex and difficult and really actually unsatisfying issue. I think every, there's lots of academics who've been studying this field for years. I think they all will agree that uh, this is a system that's fraught with errors and, and challenges that are probably impossible to meet, mostly because of the scale of the decision-making that has to happen. And even the largest, most well-resourced companies, and when we say that, we usually mean meta, um, you know, can throw a ton of resources. Many of us who watch this to think it's not enough resources still, and they still just can't handle, even come close to handling the amount of decision-making they have to make. And then smaller companies such as Twitter uh, have even a more difficult problem. Uh, our, what we have, I think it requires two things. First, there's a, there's, I think there's a realization under most global legal systems, these sites have, have a lot of freedom to set their editorial policies. And so what someone's community standards or terms of service or editorial policies could, like, could differ from an, another services. Um, our concern is, is that content moderation, whether it's a decision to take something down or to leave something up, be done with a human rights framing, done with, with awareness of the human rights consequences of these decisions. When you take something down, there's a human rights consequence that a freedom of expression consequence to the person who either wanted to read it or the person who wanted to reach their audience. When you leave something up, there may very well be a human rights consequence to that in terms of the, in terms of the harm that speech might uh, that speech might might lead to, and so we've asked them to do content moderation with the human rights framing. That's that's a really hard concept to grasp. Uh, we proposed a set of principles. We and several other organizations around the world have proposed a set of principles called the Santa Clara principles, which try and give some type of framework to that. Looking at uh, looking at you know, providing your users notice when their content is being actioned in some way, providing the opportunity for appeal, having cultural competence as you make these decisions. These decisions are not just made in the US, 
They're made all around the world. The companies rarely have adequate language capacity or cultural capacity to make these decisions, to make them consistently, uh, to make sure that your rules are clear and users understand them. And so uh, we've now released the second edition of the Santa Clara Principles, which really try and find some guidelines for how companies can try and do this in a way that comports with international human rights standards. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Mancone speaking right now about Twitter, the potential Elon Musk takeover, and what it all has to say about free expression on the platform, getting the views of Imran Ahmed, CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Also just heard a second ago from David Green. He is the Civil Liberties Director for the Electronic Frontier Foundation and also heard from David Rand, a professor of management at MIT. So, Imran Ahmed, uh, bringing you back on, uh, hearing what our other panelists have had to say so far, what do you think are the sorts of content moderation standards that uh, should be embraced more if we are just blue-skying this problem right now? Uh, do, do you think that uh, Twitter's standards, as they're laid out right now, are, are adequate and just not fully enforced to uh, to the level that you would like to see? Or are there further standards that you think that we should be considering? Look, I think broadly speaking, the platforms have got, you know, standards that most people would say try to balance expression with 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 trying to mitigate and trying to reduce egregious harms. And almost every debate about platform moderation or censorship or whatever you want to call it, it has been it has been about the lack of enforcement. So it's it's really we're talking about the few instances in which they do take enforcement action. One good example of where it's fairly easy for them to take automated enforcement action is when there are links to external websites. And so, you know, you can build a data set, which is quite rich, as David has done, David Rand has done, uh, Dr. Rand has done, you know, to, to sort of to look at um, whether or not people are, uh, which sorts of people are having their content taken down. 
But generally speaking, the platforms have been fairly poor. They've also been very poor at taking down influential speakers on their platforms. Now, I think in particular of the disinformation dozen, which we identified in March 2021 as being super spreaders of disinformation about vaccines. And even now, around 50% of these serial offenders who have serially breached the rules of those platforms in spreading disinformation that can lead to serious human harm to users, even now half of their accounts are still up, half of their followers are still intact. So I, I do think that we spend an enormous amount of time discussing the few instances in which they do act, rather than the fact that, that systemically they have not shown any will to actually live up to the aspirations within their community standards. And that's what, for example, legislation in Europe and the UK seeks to do, that it, it, it identifies the gap between community standards and, and their actual performance and says, this is the space in which we think there may be accountability, in which you may actually be liable for your failures to actually enforce the standards that both are a set of rights, that, uh, that sort of set of responsibilities that users have, but in the same sense are corollary rights that we all expect platforms in which I don't have to step on there and immediately face a, you know, a torrent of anti-Brown or anti-Muslim or anti-whatever you want abuse. Uh, and women don't have to face misogyny and LGBT people don't have to face, you know, virulent hatred and homophobia. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, certainly... A lot more uh, thorny questions uh, to be answered on all those fronts. We only have a couple of minutes left in the program, and I want to give our other two guests a chance to give their closing thoughts. I I guess maybe where to leave this is just where you would hope to see this conversation go. Um, It's not clear at this point whether or not Elon Musk is indeed going to take over Twitter. Obviously, it's a complicated process, and it could get derailed, but... It's uh, just the the possibility of this happening has opened up this conversation about free speech online and gotten a lot of people, a lot more people to focus on it over the past few weeks. And so uh, let's let's hand over to you, uh, MIT professor David Rand. Uh, Where do you think this conversation should go uh, in the months and years ahead? Well, I think when we talk about trying to improve the quality of what's on the content, moderation, as described as taking down specific posts, is one thing that is important. Um, although there's a big challenge there is scalability, as David Green was saying before, that there's just a vast number of posts every day. Um, and so it's really hard to keep up with what violates uh, terms or even what's accurate or not if you want to rely on professional fact checkers. So I think something that's really important uh, to think about and that actually is appealing to people that are really on the free speech end is other kinds of interventions that can also be part of the toolkit. For example, we've done a lot of work suggesting that if you just kind of <clears throat> prompt people to think about accuracy while they're on the platform, it'll increase the quality of what they share and that to some extent, a good chunk of the sharing of misinformation comes from people just forgetting to stop and think whether things are accurate or not before they mash the retweet button. And that's yeah. totally content neutral. Um, you know, it's just helping people do what they sort of want to do but forget to. Um, and the other thing, which Twitter has actively uh, been doing um, through their Birdwatch product, is trying to harness the wisdom of crowds to identify bad content in a more scalable way. Um, and so the idea is, um, 
you know, you can allow users on the platform to flag things as potentially misleading and then write notes about like what the added context they think is needed there. And then other users can rate those notes as helpful or not. Um, and, uh, you know, this can help inform algorithms, but it can also uh, help inform just like labeling uh, that doesn't take things off the platform, but shows it. And we've done research on Birdwatch. And even though, as you might expect, there are big partisan motivations where people are much more likely to flag tweets from people from across the aisle. Uh, still, it looks like the quality of the flagging is actually pretty good in that most of the stuff mm. that's getting flagged as misleading actually is misleading as judged by fact checkers. And so it's more like the two sides policing each other than it is like the two sides trolling each other. So I hope mm. that uh, Musk would continue programs like that. And also, most importantly, maybe, is make data available to academics and external researchers to try and understand what's going on, which Twitter, which Twitter has been very good about relative to other platforms mm. and very much hoping that that doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. And then couple of other ideas just to flag them real quick that have been thrown out there is making the algorithm for Twitter more transparent, perhaps even making it open source so people can understand why a tweet is going up or going down in the rankings. Uh, also giving users more control, basically making it customizable, uh, what sorts of content you see, what sorts of content you do not see. And uh, finally, taking away anonymity, <laughs> finally taking away the ability to be anonymous on the site, uh, similar to what's happening on Facebook, basically requiring everybody on Twitter to be verified to uh, correspond to an actual real person in the real world, taking away some of that anonymousness that uh, gives people a sense of impunity on the site. Uh, but David Green, giving the closing thoughts to you, uh, where would you hope this conversation goes? Well, it really doesn't. I really hope it doesn't go to taking away anonymity. I think that would actually be a real uh, disaster. Uh, um, there are just people around the world, uh, both in Democratic and non-Democratic societies, who simply do not have the privilege and luxury of putting their name on their speech, and that would be a real, a real loss uh, in among the among human rights, global human rights. Uh, if if uh, Twitter was. Uh, uh, required uh, or got rid of pseudonymity or or anonymity. To me, that's really just one of the tremendously naive things Elon Musk has said during this whole process. And I'm a free speech advocate, um, and I and uh, but my biggest concern about the Musk takeover is that he does. I don't think he understands what free, freedom of speech. I think he has a very cramped view of it. He hasn't seemed to uh, conducted his other professional dealings with much respect for freedom of speech. I think he looks at freedom of speech. Uh, based on freedom of speech of people already have power and not the freedom of speech of people actually really sort of need the legal protections it has. And so my biggest concern is that that's what he would implement. Uh, that's what he would implement on, on the site. Uh, and, and so again, I think sort of the not respecting the power of, of the right to speak anonymously is, is just one indication, is one indication of that. As far as I know, the studies that I have read have shown that there's not a, a link between anonymous speech um, and abusive and harassing speech, that people are just as likely to, uh, people who put their names on, on their own speech are as likely to abuse that, uh, to be abusive and harassive, harassing. And so uh, to me, it just shows a real, both a naivety, a naivete about how social media works and the complexities involved, and really just a failure to understand really what freedom of speech and freedom of expression as a human rights principle means.
Yeah. So as you flagged there, uh, big concerns remaining and also lots of questions that we're no doubt going to be discussing and working out for many years to come. But uh, we do thank all of you for joining us and helping us hash it out today. We just heard there a second ago from David Green. One last time, he is the Civil Liberties Director for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. David Green, thanks so much. Thank you. And heard a little bit earlier from David Rand, Professor of Management at MIT. David Rand, thanks to you as well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And finally, we heard from Imran Ahmed. He's the CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Imran Ahmed, thanks to you as well. Thanks so much. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 